Welcome to the Swine Time Podcast. I am your host, Spencer Wayne. I am one of the practicing veterinarians here at Pipestone, and I'm also one of the partners within uh, Pipestone Holdings, and I have the great, great pleasure of interviewing interesting people to talk about interesting things in the Swine Time Podcast. Today, I have a, an old friend of mine who has gone and done great things in life, uh, is not a Pipestone employee or, or directly associated with Pipestone, but is somebody we rely on um, regularly for his good work at the Diagnostic Lab at Iowa State. Our guest today is Dr. Darren Madsen. Darren Madsen is uh, one of the the pathologists or the diagnosticians there at the D-Lab. He's a guy with a wealth of background in production and understands pigs and pig production very well. He shared with us uh, some things that are going on at the lab there a few months ago within our own group just to update us, but I thought the listeners would really enjoy hearing from him directly on our podcast. So, Darren, I'll turn it over to you. Would you like to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background in production and how you got to, the, to where you are right now to this point in your life? Yeah. Hello, everybody. Um, uh, Darren Matz, as Spencer said, I, I grew up in southern Minnesota near uh, Elbert Lee, just south of there, actually. Um, grew up on a crop and diversified livestock farm and uh, raised bottle calves, actually, uh, growing up. But my best friend had a had pig production and uh, I got to do their chores and they paid me much more than dad, my dad ever paid me. So, um, hence I had this, uh, <laughs> kind of in passion, uh, pigs were gonna, were gonna make me some money someday. And, uh, with that, my other background of, of, uh, livestock, I decided I wanted to, uh, head to, uh, to veterinary school. So that was kind of a, a goal of mine ended up going to, uh, to the University of Minnesota on the St. Paul campus. And that's actually kind of how Spencer and I kind of kind of come together. I was in a, in a fraternity and a farmhouse fraternity. Uh, great place. Yeah. So a lot of great memories. I remember Darren, and, I think I met you when you were a f- freshman and I remember thinking, who's this kid? And uh, <laughs> little did I know you would be the master that you've become on, on all things diagnostic. I worked with kind of some practitioners uh, in the veterinary uh, field, particularly swine, one being uh, Tom Wetzel. Uh, mm-hmm. He, uh, he took me under his wing. I did an internship with him for a couple summers and uh, got to work production down in uh, near Wells, uh, Minnesota for, for a couple summers prior to vet school, which is a great experience kind of adding to that base of knowledge of uh, what the swine industry is and watching it evolve in the early uh, 2000s, um, actually in the late 90s, um, dating myself. When I got into vet school, I kind of took to uh, took to the swine and then the, the faculty there with, with Bob Morrison and Scott D and Hansu Ju and kind of focused my efforts on getting as much uh, swine production uh, medicine education as I, as I possibly could. And uh, in that same time, I worked in the diagnostic lab there in Minnesota uh, at the end of the day. So for almost, almost four years uh, during vet school, I, I would go to class and then after class I'd head to the D lab and, and uh, that kind of sparked my interest to to become a diagnostic uh, pathologist in the swine world. And I knew that after after graduation, I kind of needed to get more experience. I thought so. Opportunity to work for Christensen Farms and uh, and had a, a great experience and met my met my lifelong friends there uh, for the veterinarians. And one's now practicing in Pipestone, which is Dr. Joel Nerum, uh, Dr. Hans Rado, and Dr. Tim Niffen were the other ones. And we still uh, still have a lot of fun together. But uh, those are the mentors that kind of 
helped me in my um, production uh, world and uh, being uh, the experience of just being post-graduation of vet school. You know, being on the floor, the Necros floor of Minnesota, I could you could kind of see how everything kind of came together at the end. You know, the practitioner would submit tissues, uh, the diagnostician would sit there and order tests and think through it, and then lo and behold, a report comes out and they can find what was causing the issue, whether it was PERS, whether it was PCV2 or name your name your disease, right? And so that intrigued me quite a bit as being able to kind of pull those pieces from different uh, different clinical pictures and different tests and kind of wrap it up and say, hey, I think this is this is the issue. And that was kind of my, I don't know, passion, I guess, to try to help producers in that sense, because that was where I was thinking that I could I could make a difference. So in 06, I went to Iowa State and uh, had the opportunity to uh, do a path res- pathology residency and a PhD uh, at that time, if everybody recalls, uh, PC2 was a big issue. And so it was a really great time to be in the swine industry, not necessarily for, for production, but for research. Uh, so I got to do my uh, advanced uh, degree in, in with PCD2. So that's kind of where I kind of got my feet wet in the diagnostic world. And All right, Darren. Uh, as time goes on, you build your skill set and your reputation, and, and you definitely follow that that path. So thank you for sharing that. It was really good. And for the listeners out there that might be farmers, if, if your veterinarian comes out and submits tissues, Darren is the go-to guy. Uh, there's other really good pathologists and folks at the diagnostic lab, but Darren uh, is, he'll understand the production background of what's going on in the barn and also look at the, the histopathology and say, you've got this kind of microscopic damage and here's how I would interpret these results. So he's kind of a total package. I'm really glad he's, he's at the lab right now. So moving on, Darren, um, can you talk a little bit about just some of the highlights and high points of what is going on at Iowa State now? at the diagnostic lab, things that you say, well, these are cool new technologies, something we're doing that's unique. So the biggest thing is obviously a new uh, diagnostic lab that we are going to move into in, uh, uh, it's fully operational in uh, February, first week of February of 2024. So it's exciting. I actually get to move into my new office next week. And so this new lab is state-of-the-art, multi-million dollar um, investment and it's going in two phases. So the first phase is complete and that's what we'll move into. Uh, but that's kind of the necropsy floor, the administration, the sample processing, uh, and then uh, some back to histology. And now we're actually raising funds um, to do a second or phase two of a building, which is basically a doubling down of the building where um, the other laboratories are or pieces of the lab could could fit in too. So like the PCR labs, the bacteriology labs, the toxicology lab, uh, and move that in into a second phase. And so bids will go out for that here in the next, uh, I think sometime this spring. But in essence, we have, Iowa State has one of the, we'll have the newest and greatest uh, diagnostic lab uh, in the United States. And and I just can't thank it enough how, how how great it is, but that's kind of the big news, right? And we're just trying to get in there and uh, use that space to the best of our ability to help producers yeah, Darren, uh, and veterinarians in the field. Yep. Darren, is this expansion is, is like doubling or more your footprint physically there? It's it's a big jump. Is it to handle more of the same type of volume? Are there a bunch of new technologies or is it a mix of both? Or The expansion that's happening, is it purely to accommodate yep. throughput or is it new stuff? 
It's actually the existing stuff, uh, but it's different areas. So in, in the lab, uh, we kind of break it down to different sections. We have the histology section, which is the microscope sides. We have um, bacteriology, which we culture things. We have the PCR labs, which is molecular. Uh, we have the toxicology, which is analytical chemistry. All of those different sections are not going to fit in this new part. The new part that was currently built is actually a necropsy floor sample processing. And until that second phase is built, we will actually have to take some samples back to the old lab to actually get run uh, until we get the new funding. And then those other sections will move over. And so we will all be in one, one building. Now the old building is still going to be functional until we you know, obviously get that done. And, and the, we're just out of space. We're just uh, about 150 employees um, within the lab trying to get all these samples run in a timely manner so everybody can make decisions. Darren, this is a dumb question and it's off slightly off topic, but so you, you've got this huge expansion tax money goes into state coffers funds through special bonding or whatever it is that goes into the construction of this lab at Iowa state. But when a producer sends a case in and then they, they pay for it later and say, Oh wow, this is a lot of money or whatever. Let's say it's a few hundred bucks for a case. How much of that is covered by state support? Obviously, we just talked about the lab being built through state support, but is, is some of it subsidized? This is off topic. I'm just curious because the producer sometimes says, man, I paid a lot of money in diagnostics. Is there quite a bit of that that gets subsidized by the, by the state at the same time? Actually, uh, um, it's not subsidized from a, from a case perspective, um, which is different than some other labs. Uh, so a, a case submission for running the test is a fully functional as its own business. And, to be honest with you, the molecular lab is is uh, the number one uh, kind of a gener money generating thing mm. for for Iowa State University. There's that much throughput oh. uh, that goes through and that gets generated. Now, I I, yeah, I don't know 100% this because I don't know the details, but uh, you know, salaries are different versus what actually the lab overhead is and how mm. expenses get paid out and parsed out. So there's there's some nuances there, but for the mean for the most part, it's not subsidized. Okay, I was thinking that the cases would be far more expensive if we charge the true cost, but I didn't know. So, all right, so there, it is truly the cost of doing it when you pay yep. that bill. Okay, yep. all right, interesting stuff. Um, any specific cool new technologies that you think is worth commenting yes, on? Yes, actually, uh, there's a lot of things going on here. I wanted to touch on a few. Um, so detection of pathogens, right? That's kind of the what we want to find, figure out what we got. It's going to... Um, PCR-based, uh, a lot of different techniques there. PCR is where you actually look for the pathogen itself, and you're looking for the DNA or the RNA of that particular virus or bacteria. And in the last few years, we got something called next-generation sequencing, which is a, is a method that you could take any sample. It uh, doesn't matter what if it's you know feces or if it's saliva or whatever it is, and we could you know, kind of put it into a, a, a process where we put it into a PCR machine and we can find any or all uh, potential targets, viruses, bacteria that's in that sample. Prior to, if you recall, we actually have to select kind of what samples there, right? Like we have to say, okay, I want to test for PERS or I want to test for influenza. The next generation sequence is kind of in the reverse. It says, okay, tell me what's there. 
Um, so it's kind of like this big roundabout way to determine if there's new pathogens or if there's something causing a specific disease entity that we haven't seen before. So there's a lot of that going on. It's really neat um, finding a lot of different things um, in, the, in the veterinary world, whether they mean something. I think that's yet to be determined on a, thing, on a lot of these because we can find different viruses that are unheard of or different bacteria in different locations that are not supposed to be. Um, but actually kind of adding that all together is determining whether that's significant or not. And the interpretation of that, of that finding is, is really the key. So there's a lot of that going on. People want to understand what's in their herds, what's not in their herds. Mm -hmm. um, is this bacteria different? So we have a lot of that going on uh, yeah, within hey, the industry. Oh, just to camp out on that for a second, the producer's listening like, oh, this sounds pretty cool. And where we've applied it already, it's, it's interesting because you'll think, oh, I'm looking for one virus. And you do next gen sequencing. No, you actually got 150 organisms that, that show up. And you think, oh, well, which ones exactly. are which ones are important? Because if there's a, they can all be causing problems. And no, maybe a couple. But it's a it it opens up so many more questions, and it illustrates the importance of knowing what you're looking for and is it important or not. Because you can test for something, you might find it. You can test us. We might find something. It doesn't mean it's causing us problems necessarily. And the next gen thing kind of explodes that view where you, where you see everything all of a sudden. You think, oh, there's there's a lot going on here, not just one virus or one bacteria. Yeah, you're exactly right. And to add to that, Spencer, um, you actually could have multiple different viruses of the same of the same one. So, for instance, PERS, right? Hot topic. This, this way or this testing of next generation sequencing can say, okay, I actually have two different PERS viruses and that may make sense with what's kind of occurring in my, in my herd or why my strategy for mitigation wasn't working as well. Or maybe there's three or maybe there's four or five different circoviruses in the sample. And it's a way to actually find a virus, but it's also a way to find variations potentially of that same virus. And so that's kind of the utility of it. Uh, when we do a lot of sequencing or whole genome sequencing, we use this method to determine if there's differences. Uh, basically, we were trying to get smarter and you're right, Spencer. Sometimes we don't know what it means, but it's a finding and we have to use that to correlate with what's what's occurring. Hey, so it's, it's gonna be some time. It's gonna be a long process, but hopefully we get smarter as we do this uh, with time. Oh yeah, I bet we get a lot smarter here as we get a body of data to start assessing. Hey, what's the cost of doing that? If you'd said do a next gen it, sequencing it, effort on this, is it, what is it? Yep. Yeah, so you can break it down a little bit and I, I'm going to look online while I'm talking to you, but uh, there's different portions. You can do bacterial, you can do virus, you can just do RNA virus, you can do DNA virus. Um, but it's, it's a little bit different. And then, and the one where you want to do just kind of the novel detection, like I have a sample of lung, and you tell me what's in there, that's that's $400. Um, but basically we can take a feces and we can say, okay, what's in there? And it could be, you could have PED, you could have roto, you could have sapo, you could have E. coli, you could have all these different things in there. And that's it's gonna spit that out too. It's not gonna spit out, I have one thing. It could spit out that you have 10 or 20 uh, different uh, potential uh, pathogens in that sample. So that's, that's $400, but like there's a, there's a lower thing for, for sequencing. It's 200 and $300 gets you a whole genome sequence of like a PERS virus. So okay. that's what the, uh, and you know, really relative value. It's more than 
another simpler set of diagnostic requests, but not a lot more. This is no. a tremendous value, actually. Yep. Um, okay, we got time for one more cool thing going on before we probably have to wrap this. Anything else technologically that is worth commenting on that's new, cool, or maybe unique to Iowa State? Well, I think that, I mean, there's, there's a lot of cool tests going on. Uh, we've got a lot of new things for visualizing. Uh, RNA scope is one of them. That's another technique to try to amplify kind of small amounts of, of, of DNA or RNA in a sample. Uh, it's kind of like the old IRC. It's really cool. But I think for a short time, what's really neat is actually um, a couple new pathogens that I wanted to touch base on that we're trying to figure out what's going on. It's kind of in the industry right now. And and one being uh, neonatal diarrhea, kind of in the farrowing house, kind of sample virus is kind of new um, or hot topic. It's it's not a new virus. It's been around for, for almost, uh, almost 40 years or been detected, but now it's kind of gaining traction and we're finding a lot more and people are testing for a lot more and uh, potentially making um, Kind of different mitigation steps so that's kind of a hot topic a lot of people testing for it does, the, that, does that relate to this rna scope uh you're talking yep. about are totally separate yep we can do it on the rna scope and find it uh helps us understand uh the significance of it because obviously i think for your for your audience and this is a this is kind of a pet peeve for mine i maybe or a soapbox topic but just because you detect something doesn't necessarily mean that it's the cause or any correlation of what's actually occurring in your particular set of pigs, whether that's respiratory disease or enteric, who knows, but it basically detection does not equal correlation or causation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of the terms that we use. And so just purely finding something um, doesn't necessarily mean it's the issue until you add, you know, secondary or, or ancillary pieces of information that kind of co- corroborate uh, the issue. And so that one of those right now, I think is, is sample virus We're fighting a lot of people are associating with diarrhea. So it probably does have its role. Um, but we're using that RNA scope and we're also using whole genome sequencing because it's an RNA virus. Uh, when we do sequence out of, out of NGS, uh, you get multiple different isolates in that same sample that we talked about. So, you know, just because you detect sample virus doesn't mean there's one sample virus in that sample you could have three or four different sample viruses that are actually kind of uh, associated with the clinical diarrhea in piglets. Darren, what's what's the difference between RNA scope and just doing a simple PCR test? So our RNA scope is actually done on tissue and you're actually visualizing the, um, the DNA or RNA within that set of tissue. So if you have a lesion, so for instance, I have atrophic enteritis, which is a viral response when there's when the, the fingers of the intestine shrink. And if I have that lesion and I put a RNA scope on it, I can see that the sample virus is causing that uh, that atrophy, that shrinkage of those intestinal villi. Uh, that's the that's the benefit, right? You can actually place the antigen or the or the DNA into the lesion. So it's kind of like IHC. You can see the lesion exactly the like virus. IHC. Okay. Exactly like that. So, so um, for example, for SAPO, because this comes up a lot, I got SAPO. Well, is it a problem? So you could actually say, yes, I can see the virus there. I can also see the damage and I can see them together. That's the magic yep. of it. Okay. So it has a stronger correlation um, with with significance, meaning if I have a lesion and I find that, that pathogen in that lesion, 
we can we can put a correlation together that said, hey, this lesion looks like it's caused by this. And so it's it's stronger than just detection, which is NGS is, right? You're just detecting something in a sample and we have no idea if that if there's a lesion associated with that or not. And, and but we can tell the the amount that's there. Darren, do we have if we send a case in and we say check for sapovirus, I think they just do the PCR test. Do we have to specifically request this RNA scope testing? Yes, you would. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. If I say diagnosis of discretion, you won't it I've been requested if I want it. Yeah. And the problem with to that is sometimes it's you got to be really careful what you're looking for. The RNA scope technology is fairly new and it's still kind of expensive. Mm. Um, just like everything else when it comes out, right? It's kind of expensive and then it goes down with time. And that's where RNA scope is right now. Um, you can kind of get to it at different different avenues and, and understand the significance. But if you really want to know, you need to run that test and it's it'll come down, but it's pretty expensive right now. Okay. Hey, do you have any anything you would say advice for producers or any trends from 2023 diagnostically you think that are continuing? Anything, if it's nothing, it's fine. If it's something you think it's worth sharing, perfect. Yeah, I, I just want to say thanks, everybody. I know it's been a little bit tough here the last uh, 18 months, and it's going to be for a little bit longer, but um, hang in there. Uh, do our best to help you guys make decisions and, and move forward when it comes to kind of diagnostics and and i hate to say this right now but it's that time of the year and we've we've picked up a lot of pers virus here in the last uh last month and i and the it's starting to sneak around quite a bit and a lot of farms breaking here uh, more recently so i hate to, hate to end it on a sad note but beware i guess do you is that that uptick you're seeing is that beyond what is seasonally expected that's because i it's, get the same question high, from producers saying it's oh, higher it's higher. It's now. higher this year than in previous years past. There's a there's a great epidemiologic group here at Iowa State, and they've been trending that, and we're above a standard deviation of of historical. Mm. So it's starting to starting to go uh, here this winter. And then also on that same tech comment, I don't know if it's if it's virus virus specific or it's the changing of the viruses as with time, but we are noticing that the the viral load that we're finding in the samples is a lot higher meaning the ct values for the the pcrs are lower so there's certainly a lot more virus present in the sample and that may be helping spread the virus whether that's lateral on vehicles on people uh, just kind of keeps in mind that we got to have really good virus security as we go through these cold months because viruses like to uh, to hang out and survive better in these in these cold environments so uh just kind of refocus on that biosecurity as we as we move forward here in these this time yeah, that's that's good information to share. You're ne- always trying to ferret out is PERS worse this year than it was the previous years, and it sounds like potentially yes, for a couple of reasons. I yep, I would today I would say that that's true. Yep. Okay. Hey, Darren, uh, probably should wrap it up here. Thank you very much, old friend, for coming on and talking to us. Uh, we really enjoyed it the other day when you spoke to our group of veterinarians, and our listeners, I think, would probably gain some good information from what you just shared. So uh, thank you, Darren. Uh, everybody out there, thank you for tuning in and invite you to tune in next time for whoever our next guest is at the Swine Time Podcast here at Pipestone. Swine Time Podcast was created for the pork industry and individual pork producers around the country. Hosted by me, Dr. Spencer Wayne, with the Pipestone Veterinary Services. The podcast contains pork industry news, advancements in animal care, and how to enhance your productivity. Monthly podcasts are available on Spotify, Google Music, iTunes, Anchor, and on www.pipestone.com.